Thank you for listening to sermon podcasts from the Anglican Church Noosa. As we move into week three of our topical series on the air we breathe, this week we look at consent. The preacher is the Reverend Linda Johnson. The first reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 1 to 9 and this can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 1146. Now for matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. A reading from Matthew, chapter 19, verses 3 to 12, which can be found in your pew Bibles on page 986. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. How are you going with this series? Good? Loving it? 
Excellent. That is really, really, really good to hear. <laughs> it's a little bit different, isn't it? Um, going through topical issues and to be applying the Bible to what we experience in society. As Christians, that's, it's a key thing to have the ability to do that. We live in a world that is increasingly sceptical, increasingly hostile, increasingly negative about all that Christianity has to offer. So for us, as people who are claiming to follow Jesus Christ and proclaim him as Lord, it's really important for us to understand what that brings to our worldview. You see, what the Bible has always done and always will do is to speak into culture, any culture, and bring God's perspective on it. And it's to our detriment if we forget that. The Bible speaks into culture and critiques every culture, and we mustn't make the mistake of reversing that, which would be to allowing culture to critique the Bible. See, the Bible transcends culture, and that's one of the many reasons it is valuable. It is God who critiques us, and he has the right to do it, and it is God who speaks into our life and into the life of society. What I'm seeing happening more and more is that people are critiquing God and critiquing the Bible. Now, what that does is to actually place us above God. Now, please be sure that what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't look at the Bible carefully and ask the proper and right questions. But as I look at the behaviour or perspective of humanity critiquing God, I see it as just a tad foolish. (laughs) We are flawed human beings, and for us to come to God with an attitude of superiority, I'm just not sure where that would get us. (laughs) If he is God then by definition, he's a bit bigger than us. I've heard people say, who does God think he is? When I get to meet him. I've heard people say that. But in a society that denies God, rejects God or ignores God, who else is the ultimate authority than you? or some other human being who proclaims themselves as the authority. This series is showing us that the excellent qualities that we can find in human beings, that we can find in society, the excellent pursuits that are honourable and lauded are there precisely because we have a bigger authority over us who has exemplified these qualities and applies them as necessary. And that has always been countercultural. All critique, all cultures are critiqued by God, critiqued by the scriptures, and today's topic is a prime example for how we are to treat other human beings. The topic we're looking at today, my friends, is consent. Consent. And I want to preface 
everything I'm going to say today with a caution and an invitation. The topic of consent touches lives deeply and it touches some lives painfully. And my caution is that this topic may bring up for you memories that are painful or toxic. And can I say from the outset, I'm so sorry if that is the case for you. But that's my caution. My invitation is that if this does bring up for you any painful things from the past or any issue that is current, please don't hesitate to come to me or to Chris or to another trusted Christian friend and you will find an ear that listens and cares. I can't stress that enough. This topic of consent is a huge one. And today, really, we're talking MA stuff in a G environment. So please be aware of that as we move forward. Friends, we are always horrified to hear of another rape, another instance of abuse or exploitation, or one person having unwanted power over another person. Our current society speaks a lot about consent. Have you noticed that? It's a topical issue. But now it seems something a little different than it has done in generations before. For a long time, parents have had to give consent for their children to do stuff at school. Haven't, I mean, how long have we been signing permission notes? Long time. These days, though, it goes a lot further. As a church, we need to ask for your consent to send you emails. We ask for your consent to acknowledge your birthday or your anniversary in e-news or take a photo of you and perhaps use it visibly somewhere. And in schools, students are now taught that before anybody can touch them, they need to give their consent. Teenagers are taught that if anyone wants a sexual relationship, there must be consent all along the way, and consent can be given or withdrawn at any point. The consent issue has brought us the Me Too movement. Now, whatever your opinion is of the Me Too movement, it originally began because someone, somewhere, had something done to them which was unwanted. The bottom line is that our society now takes the necessity for consent for granted. And why is that? Well, believe it or not, it's because of the influence of Christianity. Especially on how to treat children, on how men and women are to treat one another, and particularly how men are to treat women. In the Greco-Roman world, consent was not something that was needed at all. Men just had power over women and men could sexually use women for whatever they wanted. Except for women of very high standing, it was hands off them. 
But women generally had restrictions on them and what they could or couldn't do. In his book, The Air We Breathe, Glenn Scrivener points out that in the ancient world, there was a word for a female virgin. There were over 20 words for a prostitute, but there were no words, no one word for a male virgin. And there was no word for it because there was no need for such a word. It was simply expected that if a male had reached adulthood, he was sexually experienced. And the reason that men could reach adulthood and be sexually experienced was because of the vast practice of pederasty. Pederasty meant child love, if you get what I mean. And it was a validated way for adult men to, in inverted commas, to prepare young boys sexually. These days, because of the influence of Christianity, we call this practice pedophilia, and it's a crime. And I'm so thankful for that. Back in the early centuries of the Christian church, the Christians could see that pederasty was an evil, and they named it as such. They named it abuse. The word they used was Pedophthorus, which is the opposite of the love of children. Pedophthorus means the destruction of children. Those early Christians viewed all sexual contact with the young as an act of corruption. In fact, in the reign of the Christian Emperor Justinian during the 500s, pederasty was outlawed and could be prosecuted even well after the abuse had taken place. Christians were influencing the sexual expression of a whole society. And now I'm sure you'd agree that pedophilia, any sexual abuse of children, is one of the moral certainties of our day, isn't it? For 12 years I was on the council of a diocesan school that sadly had been very badly impacted by the presence of teachers on staff who did abominable things over many years, impacting many, many students. It was during my years on that council that the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse was carried out, and the case of that school was covered in November 2015. As the extent of what happened became more evident in the years leading up to the Royal Commission, there was despair and anger and deep, deep sadness around that council table as we realised the horror of the abuse and the consequences it had. I was deputy chair of the council and my principal and chair had made the courageous decision to attend the hearing days and to engage personally with the victims. Something which has proved over time to have been of immense value and it's of ongoing value to the victims. Each evening during that week of hearing of that particular school, I downloaded and read the transcript of the day's proceedings to be a support to the principal and the chair and to pray for them. 
My heart was ripped as I read the horror of what these victims experienced. The terribly sad thing is that abuse wasn't just confined to teachers in a school, but there has been sexual abuse across many parts of the church. Throughout decades, people were abused in churches, in church schools, in church orphanages, in organisations run by the church. There were incidences of cover-ups and corruption that were unimaginable. And this was across denominations. And it was a terrible but important lesson to learn that the church is not immune to sinful, deviant and corrupt human behaviour. Child abuse also in homes and other forms of domestic violence is becoming more and more in the light, isn't it? The human heart has always been sinful. We can't deny that that is the default position. It's our default position, isn't it? We're sinners. Christianity has shown us a better way, no doubt. But sadly, the Christian church has also seen evil within its ranks. Can I say, if you are a survivor who has experienced abuse as a child or a teenager, either at home, at a school, through a church institution, through a parish, I want to say to you now, on behalf of the church, I am so sorry. On the consent issue, there is much to be sorry about and we must pray that these abuses stop. And yet alongside the necessary apologies... There is also so much to be thankful for that the church has achieved over 2,000 years. What these readings tell us today are some very important points. In the ancient world, there was inequality between men and women. As I was describing earlier, men had the freedom to be incredibly licentious. When Chris and I were in Turkey in 2014, we visited Ephesus and we saw that amazing structure that is the library. How many of you have seen it? If you haven't seen it, I hope you've seen pictures of this building. That's it. The interesting thing about that city was that opposite the library, across the street, there is evidence of a brothel. And archaeologists have also found evidence of a hidden tunnel that went under the road from the library to the brothel. And men would tell their wives they were going to broaden their minds through study at the library while actually making use of the tunnels and accessing the brothel. There was an awful inequality between men and women And what the scriptures did was to equalise men and women. Not by helping women to be licentious, but by urging men 
to be self-controlled. And in this way, there was a calling out of the difference and a calling into modesty and chastity. When Jesus declared the view of marriage that he did in Matthew 19, he was calling men to be as chaste as women. He was saying that marriage is to be for life and to be just between two people, male and female. In a Greco-Roman world, that concept was laughable, absolutely laughable, and yet that's what Christianity brought. This was a remarkable revolution in society and family life, and it brought new definitions to what was good and helpful and right and appropriate. This restricting of men wasn't actually inhibiting them. It was, in fact, equalising men and women so that women had as much say in the relationship as men did. Did you see that in the Corinthians reading? This talks about mutual consent in the sexual realm of marriage, when to indulge, when to refrain. And this mutual consent was especially important in relation to any sexual relations that were purely for personal gratification of one partner only. It equalised. This was, in fact, a sexual revolution in its own right that was outstanding for women. The revolution brought about by the new standards from Jesus was so amazing that society and family life flourished as Christianity spread. Now, there's another sexual revolution that we hear about, isn't there? Much more understood in the wider world and often gets talked about. That happened in the 1960s. But I reckon that sexual revolution has only brought chaos and confusion. Chris and I were in a cafe recently and this was on the wall. I'll read it to you. Your body is not a temple. It's an amusement park. Enjoy the ride. Now that needs to be... You need to sit with that for a while just to realise... How terrible it is. You see, in our society, on one level, consent is upheld in society as a good thing, and yet alongside that, the Christian sexual ethic is being let go. That sex is the lifelong union of a marriage between a man and a woman, and that there is to be faithfulness in marriage with mutual consent, and there is to be faithfulness in singleness. My friends, we can be confident that this great value of consent that our world holds so dear came directly from the Christian idea of equality and mutuality that Jesus held high. Now, I'm going to end there, but there's one more thing that I want to say. And that is that if anything that I've said today has brought up issues from the past or issues that are currently happening now, please don't leave them undealt with. 
please do something. May God bless you all. The Anglican Church Noosa is an evangelical Anglican church on the northern end of the Sunshine Coast, Queensland, Australia. Our vision is living to love and proclaim Jesus. Our core values are being Christ-centred, Bible-based, spirit-led and mission-shaped. If you have found this sermon helpful and would like to contribute to the ongoing ministry of ACN, please go to our website, anglicanchurchnoosa.org forward slash giving. Thank you for listening.